The gray, smoggy air choked Alice Hamilton's lungs as she tried to hold in a cough. She pressed her handkerchief close over her nose, trying not to think about her stinging eyes. The Chicago factory was busy in the 1910s, and the workers didn't stop as Alice moved around them on the factory floor. She had a job to do. From her years as a doctor, she had seen the toll of factory work as hundreds of innocent men died from exposure of toxic fumes and metals. As Alice stepped over the grime on the factory floor, she reminded herself that she was here for a reason. She needed to find those silent killers and prevent more lives from being lost. Rains of people are more interested than the looks, I think. Electric power is everywhere present in a limited quantity. Jane, if you really want something, and you work hard, and you take advantage of opportunity, and you never give up. You're listening to Human Angle, a podcast that focuses on the hidden lives of scientists, asking what makes them human. I'm your co-host, Kenna Castleberry, here with my lovely other co-host, Ken Castleberry. Thank you, Kenna, and thank you all for being here and being our listeners. We appreciate all of you. Thanks to you, we've had over 1,700 podcast plays. If you are new to our podcast, you can find it on all your favorite platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and other places. Be sure to give us a five-star review, like, and subscribe. Share today's episodes with your friends. Today's episode focuses on Dr. Alice Hamilton, a doctor, medical investigator, activist, and the first woman to be appointed to Harvard faculty. Hamilton's work studying diseases and poisonings has saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives over the years. Research for this podcast came from several articles, including one from the American Chemical Society. So with that, it's time to get started. Born in New York City in 1869, Alice Hamilton was raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in a privileged and cultured family, aware of its place in American society. She grew up on a large estate acquired by her grandfather, a Scots-Irish immigrant who had invested in land and railroads. From her earliest days, Alice Hamilton's deepest attachment was to her family. The second of her four sisters, born within six years, there was also a younger brother, the Hamilton girls pursued education and professional goals in the face of a declining family fortune. They remained close as adults, none married, and in later years they often traveled and lived together. All of the children were homeschooled by their parents from an early age. Edith, the eldest, became famous in her 50s as a classicist and author of Greek way and mythology. So I've actually read a bunch of Edith Hamilton's work, and you can easily see her intellect and thought process in her books. And that's no surprise knowing that she was homeschooled (laughs) and having a family that focused on education. Yeah, especially back then, too. Yeah, Yeah. especially for a woman back then. (laughs) Homeschooling was important to the Hamilton family. Hamilton's mother objected to the hours in the Fort Wayne public schools, and her father disliked the curriculum, which stressed subjects he found uninteresting, such as arithmetic and American history. Instead, the sisters received an uneven education at home, learning what their parents thought important, languages and literature in particular. Following a family tradition among the Hamilton women, Alice completed her early education at Miss Porter's Finishing School for Young Ladies, also known as Miss Porter's School, in Farmington, Connecticut, from 1886 to 1888. 
In addition to Alice, three of her aunts, three cousins, and all three of her sisters were alumni of the school. In her autobiography, Hamilton describes some of the teachings in her day as the world's worst. Since students elected their subjects, Hamilton avoided mathematics and science, choosing Latin, Greek, German, and what was called mental and moral philosophy, which she did not understand, but merely learned by memorization and recitation. In her teens, Alice Hamilton decided to become a doctor. In her autobiography, she offered an explanation for her choice, probably colored more by the turns her life later took than by youthful idealism. I chose medicine, she wrote. Not because I was scientifically minded, for I was deeply ignorant of science. I chose it because as a doctor, I could go anywhere I pleased, to far off lands or to city slums, and be quite sure I could be of use anywhere. Whatever the reason, she could not go into medical school immediately after Miss Porter's for two reasons. She needed to convince her father that it was a valid choice, and she had to overcome her lack of education in science. She studied physics and chemistry with a Fort Wayne High School teacher, took biology and anatomy courses at a, quote, little third-rate, end quote, medical school, overcame her father's objections, and enrolled in the medical department of the University of Michigan in 1892. There she had the opportunity of studying with, quote, a remarkable group of men, end quote, John Jacob Abel, pharmacology, William Henry Howe, physiology, Frederick George Novi, bacteriology, Victor C. Vonan, biochemistry, and George Dock, medicine. During her last year of study, she served on Dr. Dock's staff, going on rounds, taking histories, and doing clinical laboratory work. Hamilton earned a medical degree from the university in 1893. After graduating from Michigan, Hamilton interned at the Northwest Hospital for Women and Children in Minneapolis, and then at the more prestigious New England Hospital for Women and Children outside Boston. Hamilton already had decided on a career in science rather than practicing medicine, but she took the internship to gain clinical experience. Soon after, she sailed for Germany, accompanied by her sister Edith. She intended to study bacteriology and pathology, but German universities did not admit women. The Hamilton sisters eventually gained permission to attend classes at universities in Munich, Leipzig, so long as they remained invisible to the male students. It was not the last time Hamilton had to overcome prejudice against women to achieve her goals. When Alice returned to the United States in September 1896, she continued postgraduate studies for a year at the John Hopkins University Medical School. Then she landed a job teaching pathology at the Women's Medical School of Northwestern University in Chicago. Hamilton accepted it not only because it was a job, but also because it provided the opportunity to live at Hull House, which she moved into in 1897, Founded by Jane Addams and other socially conscious reformers, Hull House was the most famous settlement house in the United States. The social settlements attempted to bring the well-off in contact with immigrants and the poor. Hull House made it possible for educated and dedicated young people and the working class to live as neighbors. 
In her autobiography, Exploring the Dangerous Trades, 1943, Hamilton noted what Hull House taught her, quote, Life in a settlement does several things to you. Among others, it teaches you that education and culture have little to do with real wisdom and the wisdom that comes from life experiences, end quote. It was at Hull House in the first two decades of the 20th century that Alice Hamilton made her greatest mark in the development of industrial toxicology. At Hull House, Hamilton treated poor immigrants for diseases often resulting from working conditions. In 1910, Hamilton took part in a commission appointed by the governor of Illinois to study the extent of industrial sickness in the state, particularly the high mortality rates due to industrial poisoning in the lead and associated enamelware industries, rubber production, painting trades, and explosives and munitions. She served as managing director of the survey and made the study of lead industries her special focus. Although Hamilton moved away from Chicago in 1919 when she accepted a position as assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, she returned to the Hull House and stayed for several months each spring until Jane Addams' death in 1935. When the Women's Medical School closed in 1902, Hamilton took a position as a bacteriologist with the Memorial Institute of Infectious Diseases, working with Ludwig Hechtowin. During this time, she also formed a friendship with bacteriologist Ruth Tunicliffe. Hamilton investigated a typhoid epidemic in Chicago before focusing her research on the investigation of industrial diseases. Some of Hamilton's early research in this area included attempts to identify causes of typhoid and tuberculosis in the communities surrounding Hull House. Her work on typhoid in 1902 led to the replacement of the chief sanitary inspector of the area by the Chicago Board of Health. By 1916, Hamilton had become America's leading authority on lead poisoning. For the next decade, she investigated a range of issues for a variety of state and federal health committees. Hamilton focused her explorations on occupational toxic disorders, examining the effects of substances such as aniline dyes, carbon monoxide, mercury, tetrahethyl lead, radium, benzene, carbon disulfide, and hydrogen sulfide gases. In 1925, at a public health service conference on the use of lead and gasoline, she testified against the use of lead and warned of the danger it posed to people in the environment. Nevertheless, leaded gasoline was allowed. The EPA in 1988 estimated that over the previous 60 years that 68 million children suffered high toxic exposure from leaded gasoline and leaded fuels. Hamilton later was asked by Charles Neal, Commissioner of Labor in the U.S. Department of Commerce, to undertake a similar survey covering all the states. She received little government backing and no salary, though the government agreed to buy her final report. She was then in her early 40s and one of a small group of experts in occupational diseases, relying primarily on, quote, shoe leather epidemiology, end quote, her process of making personal visits to factories, conducting interviews with workers, and compiling details of diagnosed poisoning cases, and the emerging laboratory science of toxicology, Hamilton pioneered occupational epidemiology and industrial hygiene. She also created the specialized field of industrial medicine in the U.S., over the ensuing years, Hamilton's many reports for the federal government dramatized the high mortality rates for workers in dangerous trades and brought about many changes in state and federal laws that were landmarks in the industrial safety legislation of the U.S. During World War I, the U.S. Army tasked her with solving a mysterious ailment, striking workers at a munitions plant in New Jersey. 
She led a team that included George Minot, a professor at Harvard Medical School. She deduced that the workers were being sickened through contacts with the explosive TNT. She recommended that the workers wear protective clothing to be removed and washed at the end of each shift, solving the problem. In 1919, Hamilton was offered a position in the industrial medicine at Harvard Medical School. Hamilton was the first woman on the Harvard faculty, and all her students were men, since the university still did not admit women. The faculty position came with three stipulations. She could not attend the faculty club, she could not get football tickets, and she could not march in the commencement procession. Hamilton had a stipulation of her own, to teach only one semester a year so she could continue her investigations and return to Hull House for part of the year. Hamilton was never promoted at Harvard and during her teaching career held only a succession of three-year appointments. She remained an assistant professor until forced into mandatory retirement at the age of 65 when she moved with her sister Margaret to Haddleline, Connecticut. Hamilton also remained an activist in social reform efforts. Her specific interests in civil liberties, peace, birth control, and protective labor legislation for women caused some of her critics to consider her a radical and a subversive. From 1924 to 1930, she served as the only woman member on the League of Nations Health Committee. She also visited the Soviet Union in 1924 and Nazi Germany in April of 1933. Hamilton wrote, quote, The Youth Who Are Hitler's Straits, end quote, which was published in the New York Times. The article described Nazi exploitation of youth in the years between the two world wars. She also criticized the Nazi education, specifically for its domestic training of girls. After her retirement from Harvard in 1935, Hamilton became a medical consultant to the U.S. Division of Labor Standards. In her long retirement, when she was in her 80s and 90s, Hamilton took an active role in campaigning against McCarthyism and what she considered the excess of American anti-communism. In 1963, when she was 94, she signed an open letter to President Kennedy asking for an early withdrawal of U.S. troops from Vietnam. Alice Hamilton celebrated her 100th birthday in 1969, and the many plaudits included a telegram from President Nixon praising her successes in industrial medicine. Hamilton died on September 22, 1970, at the age of 101. Three years later, Congress passed the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which improved workplace standards. Wow. Yeah, kind of crazy as far as just like... The fact that she's able to push her way through a very male-dominated oh my goodness she broke so many barriers and to think about her education right not not being in the sciences not being mathematical and and curious with with the language that she learned yeah you would think that would help her as she delved into the sciences I think the other thing, too, is, like, because she became such a forefront on industrial medicine, like, people, it's a weird position for her, because she's, like, being asked by all these men to be like, hey, can you check out this factory and see what's, like, being an issue for the workers? And then when she shows up, of course, she's the only woman. (laughs) And so I'm sure that felt really weird and, and awkward for her. But at the same time, like, I'm imagining her, because she's broken so many barriers, like you said, to just be kind of normal with that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, well, really and to be on staff at Harvard, but you can't 
I know. All their stipulations, they're like, you can't actually really be here. We're hiring you, but you can't really be seen by people. Right, right. I just, I find that so, what do I want to say, like, really petty, almost. <laughs> like, they're they're kind of like, okay, reluctant, we have to hire you, blah, 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 but, you know, mm-hmm. you can't do these things. But what an amazing woman. And, I know. Wow, a long life. And I'm curious, it, interesting that none of the kids married. Yeah. That's a big I, family and no one's being married, family. but it sounds like they were very close and supportive of each other. Yeah. And, and yeah. What I find interesting that you just mentioned the long life thing was that she didn't actually die of any like poisons or anything that she. Yeah. Considering into. her industry. Right. I mean, she was around that stuff. And you know, it is the 1920s. <laughs> so it's also one of those where they didn't have the um, precautions that mm-hmm. we do today. So I'm right. sure she was just inhaling whatever she wanted. Well, or... and I'm, I'm curious because she did, um, advise the workers, right. To oh, put true. on protective gear. So I'm curious if she, she was ahead would, of her time, right. If she would have done that herself, I knowing that. that she's yeah. putting herself in, in harm's way. So her. yeah, very, very, um, interesting woman. And Definitely great at breaking those barriers. Well, thank you for listening to our episode on Alice Hamilton. Stay tuned for our next episode on the science of Leonardo da Vinci. Mm, Very artsy.